The Prayer for Illumination. O parent of all peoples, breathe your Holy Spirit on us, that we may see the peace and be filled with the joy of the risen Christ. Teach us how to speak his words of forgiveness so that we can be your agents of reconciliation in a broken and troubled world. Amen. A reading from Genesis. Now the serpent had more naked intelligence than any other animal of the field that the sovereign God had made. And it said to the woman, Indeed, did God say, You too shall not eat from any tree in the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of any tree in the garden we may eat, though of the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God said, You too shall not eat and shall not touch it, lest you too die. Then the serpent said to the woman, You too will certainly not die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you too will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some, of, she gave some to her man, who was with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made loincloths for themselves. from the Gospel of Matthew. Beware of false prophets who will come to you all in sheep's clothing, but, are inside, but inside are rapacious wolves. By their fruits you will know them. Are grapes gathered from thorns or from thistles figs? Thus every good tree bears beautiful fruit, but the rotten tree bears wicked fruit. A good tree cannot bear wicked fruit, nor can a corrupt tree bear beautiful fruit. Every tree that does not bear beautiful fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will know them by their fruits. This is the word of the Lord. I'm not entirely sure how this conversation started, but a friend shared with me last week about an instance in her Sunday school class back when she was about 15. In this class, they were talking about the Tower of Babel, which takes place a little bit later in the book of Genesis. It might be a fairly familiar story, but just to refresh everybody's memory, The humans of Earth want to be like God and want to reach God's realm, so they build this super tall tower. God gets mad and then scatters them across the world and mixes up their language so they can't understand each other. Brief summary. Well, this friend was telling me that at the time, she was so convinced that after God mixed up all the languages, God also painted all the people different colors, and that's why people have different skin color and hair color and eye colors. And she was utterly convinced that this happened, that that the story was in the Bible. And for my Enneagram people, she is like a solid Enneagram 8, just for some helpful context. So she spent a good, like, 15 minutes trying to convince her class that this actually happened until someone was like, okay, well, show me where it is. And she couldn't find it, and she realized that she just made the entire thing up. And it makes sense. Many interpreters see the story of the Tower of Babel as an etiology or a story to explain the origins of something, of this one specifically of the diversity of languages. And maybe Hannah and Hans could give us a more robust answer about language origin and movement, but but the multitude of languages in the world does beg the basic question of how did we get here? Much like the creation story we read tonight, 
For the ancient world, stories and myths are shared to answer some of those fundamental questions. Questions like, why do we look different? Very well could have some kind of mythology of God painting people different colors. I don't know. It's reasonable, but it's, not, it's definitely not in the Bible. And I share this story because it calls into question for me the number of times I have been convinced that something is in the Bible when it's not. I used to believe, and I was taught, that the Bible said something about forbidding premarital sex until I looked it up one day and learned that it does not. There's nothing that directly states that a couple cannot have sex until after they are married. If anything, you probably have to do a lot of mental gymnastics to get there. Um, but this is not just limited to my own experience or my friend's experience. I've heard many people say, God helps those who help themselves, believing that they are quoting scripture when they are actually quoting Benjamin Franklin. I have also heard people say, this too shall pass, thinking it was in the Bible, but that phrase does not appear. We hear, it came to pass, when talking about some kind of narrative, but this too shall pass is not there. It actually originated from an ex-coach of the Chicago Bears who also thought he was quoting the Bible and tweeted that out after he got fired. The book of Jonah mentions a fish. No whale. No whale is ever mentioned. The list goes on. So we all do this, right? Sometimes, like my friend, we completely make it up, like we Mandela effect the Bible. And sometimes our culture leads us to assume something about what is in the Bible, whether or not we've actually been taught it. And scripture is not the only way that we come to know God, but it is an important source of revelation for Christians. So it's significant when we attribute something to God when, in fact, it did not actually come from the word of God. And so I think it's easy to see how we might also misinterpret scripture and passages entirely, either purposefully or on accident, to make our point, because it can be hard to remember all of what's in there. But here's the thing. When it comes to the study, interpretation, and transmission of scripture, we as human beings experience the world as limited creatures and therefore experience scripture as limited beings. We miss some things. We don't remember it correctly. We don't always get it right. Sometimes it can be kind of funny and fairly harmless, but sometimes it's not. And within the story we read tonight, this human limitation of memory is true even at the outset. So I want to spend some time debunking some assumptions about the story and think critically about what the story might be revealing to us as fellow interpreters of God's call and commands to us. I think there's a fallacy within narratives surrounding this passage that the life in the Garden of Eden was perfect until the consumption of the fruit and everything negative came afterwards. But there's textual evidence to the contrary. Humans experience loneliness, and we talked about this a little bit last week. And particularly in this story we read tonight, temptation in conversation with the serpent, and anxiety and limitation of knowing and remembering what they were told about the tree. Remember, the text said that the world was made good, not perfect. Additionally, and I don't really have like an eloquent way of saying this, so maybe just like take me at my word and my exegesis, but the serpent is not Satan. And I think we need to remove that interpretation from our minds. It is never, he's never named as such. And I, I think we can blame Justin Martyr, who's a first century historian, for that interpretation, but that's neither here nor there. But we don't have to see the serpent as evil. It is not in otherworldly creatures. The humans in the story are not surprised or startled by its appearance. The serpent is a metaphor a fall guy, a tester who elevates the boundaries and memory of humanity, who is meant to stir the curiosity of the humans, curiosity that is already there. And after the consumption of the fruit, sure, the story alludes to an intensification of suffering, but, 
but some suffering was already there. And when I talk about the consumption of the fruit, the decision and responsibility lies in both of the humans. The story and its history place a lot of blame and burden on a woman and a snake, but I think it's about time to redeem them as they, they were also working within the limitations of their time. There is nothing in this passage that should have us believe that Eve is standing there by herself while Adam is off somewhere else. He's right there listening to everything they're saying and he does not argue against eating it either. So it's not fair or accurate to assume that he is somehow morally superior then. They are both limited and both responsible. And again, the snake is not evil, but a character used to demonstrate that point. And I wonder how much of humanity's fear of snakes potentially is a result of this comparison. This is not wildly pertinent to the rest of my sermon, but I do want to mention that the kind of fruit that the humans eat is also never named. Tradition, particularly in art, depicts them as eating an apple, but apple trees are not native to the Mediterranean, and apples probably wouldn't have been known to the writers of this, of this story. If you want to get like really deep in like nerdiness with me, the Latin words for apple and evil sound very similar, so there's probably some mix up there. But overall, it doesn't really matter, <laughs> but if scholars had to guess, it would probably be a fig tree. Anyways, we have a history of adding to and mistaking texts as a result of our own memory and tradition. And, and in this conversation between the humans and the serpent, we witness an argument that includes Eve's interpretation and memory of what God said, what the, um, what the serpent convinces the humans that God said, and what God actually says. And in that limitation, in that confusion, and in the use of their freedom to push against the boundaries, the fruit is consumed. And this is the phenomenon that I have been talking about, the human experience of adding, subtracting, and misinterpreting the word of God. And it is here at the beginning of Genesis. We read in Genesis 2 that God says to the humans to eat your fill from all of the garden's trees, but don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, because on that day you eat from it, you will die. But in Genesis 3, we read Eve's summary. From the fruit of any tree in the garden we may eat, the fruit of the tree that is in the middle of the garden, God said, you too shall not eat it and shall not touch it, lest you die. God never said anything about touching it, which probably reveals some of that anxiety um, that I was talking about before. And what she says about the tree is also a paraphrase, right? We don't get the location of the tree in Genesis 2, but her reference to the tree in the middle, we and the serpent assume is the same tree God was talking about in the previous chapter. And the, sermon, or the serpent's response about humans becoming like God if they eat the fruit is a new element that comes to the scene. It is deceptive and potentially a lie, though we realize later is maybe closer to the truth than death. But like us who have also experienced the conviction that something exists in scripture, I get why it could be believable. I imagine the humans thinking, God didn't say that earlier in the garden, but maybe God did and we missed it. And the serpent repeats the key phrase, God knows, which implies that, that God is keeping something back from them, which would, I think, maybe spark my own curiosity. We talk about the serpent being a tempter, but what if he's also a truth teller, revealing another possibility of the world? And that is just one possibility. The serpent doesn't give choices or lay out all of the possibilities of what could happen if they do or don't eat the fruit. This conversation is an exegetical one. It is them interpreting and explaining their understanding of what God has said. 
And the serpent and the woman have long been demonized for their exegetical work, but maybe we should take their example more seriously. Because I think that this is an example of how our interpretation of events, of scripture, of God, have a multitude of possibilities. Possibilities of life and death. Something we all experience in our limitation of fully understanding God and the world around us. So I don't want us to be paralyzed with fear that we have to get an interpretation exactly right or the world will burn. <laughs> but my point in using this story is not to take it too far, which in my opinion, the church has done historically, but to elevate the ways that our interpretation and use of scripture, what is there and what is not, do have an impact on the world around us. And we can find it as early as Genesis. You will hear me say many times that the Christian community is full of diverse sets of interpretation, a diverse array of possibilities of where our imagination as inspired by the Holy Spirit can take us. And I think this can be a beautiful representation of the diversity of God and our freedom to imagine. But our imagination can become harmful and hurtful, which is where I turn to the Sermon on the Mount, particularly this fruitful passage in Matthew tonight, one that elevates the ways in which we can aim to get those interpretations right. Good interpretation bears good fruit. I've told many of my Havruta groups, and some of y'all individually probably, that you could find passages throughout the Bible to support anything you want. If you want to support the death penalty or you want to oppose the death penalty, you can find passages to defend both points of view. If you want to subjugate women or you want to uplift women, you can find passages to defend both points of view. If you want to defend your belief that God is hateful and violent, or you want to defend your belief that God is loving and gracious, you can do both. The list goes on. Now, I could go through and unpack each of these and probably use the first three chapters of Genesis to do so, but we don't really have time for that tonight. But the question raised by Jesus about our interpretation is which ones bear good fruit? Not which ones give us the correct or right faith, not which ones neglect our responsibility to our neighbors for our own righteous piety, but the ones that bear good fruit are the ones that take us on the road towards righteous living living in a way that serves and helps our community, that alleviates poverty and brings about peace and mercy, that embodies love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, generosity, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control, i.e. the fruits of the Spirit that we talked about last semester. The gospel offers words to govern our lives, that we might know a tree, a person, a love, a theology, or a biblical interpreter and their interpretation by its fruits. Is it good, beautiful, nutritious, corrupt, rotten. For example, many folks could argue day and night about whether or not God loves gay people based on how we view passages in scripture. But at the end of the day, which one is bearing good fruit? The one that ex excludes and harms and kicks children out of their homes and their church? Or the one that supports and loves all of God's children and continues to invite them in as beloved members of God's family? Clearly, I have some uh, <laughs> opinions on that one, and I think you'd probably know where I stand. But Lent gives us this opportunity to reflect on the limitations of humanity, including the consequences of our actions and inactions. The story of, of Adam and Eve sets us up to think about the fruit we bear and our consumption of it. And part of that is knowing that we are going to be wrong sometimes. We cannot always get it right. Occasionally we might add things to the story and believe they are there, which is sometimes funny and will get you laughed at by your youth group or your friends 20 years later. Occasionally, those things we add become so normalized that we forget they aren't actually there to begin with. Occasionally, we will realize the church's history of interpretation has become just a large pile of rotted fruit that does no one any good. But occasionally, we can get it right. 
we stop focusing on our own selfishness and selfish desires and bear good fruit. And we do this together. In this community, I'm thinking about our upcoming event with Books for Keeps to help organize their warehouse so they can get books in the hands of kids and promote literacy. I'm thinking too about our upcoming spring pilgrimage that will give us the opportunity to bear witness to America's racist history and elevate the voices that we have silenced so we can take part in creating better futures for everyone. These are things we do not just because it's good and nice, but because our faith compels us to love our communities better. Because God has called us to such a time as this, and has actually called us. That part I do know is in the Bible. I imagine that there are many things that you already do in your day-to-day -day lives that bear good fruit. And if that's an area of your spiritual practice where you feel you might want to dig a little deeper, Ava's going to share more about some of the upcoming events here, if that feels right to you. But they don't even have to be grand gestures. Maybe extending yourself some of God's grace, peace, patience, etc., is the most important fruit you can bear right now, and that's good too. One of my favorite parts of being at the PSC is thinking creatively about what we do with this thing we call scripture. What these stories make us think about, what they compel us to do, how the still speaking God reveals God's self today. We might, we might come up with different answers, read the stories a bit differently, but I think many of these questions come down to how do I live my life compelled by my faith to love the world as much as I can? And I look forward to the responses as we continue to discern together. Amen. <laughs>